Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, we try to explore the answer to the question of where do I start if I am trying to get into endurance sports or the other highly prevalent question, how do I improve if I have been doing this stuff? I might be a beginner. I might be advanced. I might have been doing this for decades and feel like I'm just sort of grinding grain every year, but not really seeing any growth. Is there anything I need to do differently? To answer this, we're going to ask three other questions. I would say these are the three questions. What is intensity? What is volume? And what is frequency? Let's get into today's episode. So the three essential questions, again, as I see them, are what does my training intensity need to be? Uh, What does my training frequency need to be? And what does my training volume need to be? And I don't think this is a stepped process in terms of figuring these things out. I mean, necessarily, these being three different concepts, we're going to talk about them Um, somewhat independently and to then in your own training um, practice like exercise approaches to exercise and fitness you're going to have to think about these things autonomously uh, in terms of function in terms of actually applying these things these things are all being applied at the same time so you know I think people like to break things down into steps because there's this idea that stepifying things is increasing the accessibility and making things easier to understand Um, and sometimes that's true but that's certainly not always the case by any means so when we talk about these questions the order in which we talk about them doesn't have any significance it's not a recipe it's not first you do this then you do this then you do this Um, like anytime you move you're applying intensity, frequency, and volume. So if you're walking um, around or you're vacuuming your house or whatever while you're listening to this podcast, whatever you might be doing, you're, you're applying intensity, frequency, and volume at the same time. So these things are happening simultaneously. And instead, we want to think about these things because oftentimes, I think in practice, a lot of people might learn to think about one thing. So if you think about the high volume low volume dichotomy that exists in all endurance sports. And I think this dichotomy is something that's sort of easy conceptually for people to frame um, or imagine as like real or something that makes sense. Um, And there's some, it is true, right? That you can have a higher or a lower amount of volume of exercise. Um, But when people talk about that, right, they're only talking about one third of the complex of what does it mean to exercise, right? And I've, you know, I think for me, um, I've gone through phases where I've generally felt that, okay, if I really want to see 
improvement, I need to really focus on just volume. I need to do more numbers. And this is a classic uh, thing for, you know, all endurance athletes and different endurance disciplines. And I think different sports have different benchmarks. Runners, there's this sort of belief that if you can run 100 miles a week, good things will happen. And there's so many uh, stories out there, um, which I think, unfortunately, are largely apocryphal of people running 100 miles a week and then doing it for X amount of time and there being some huge transformation. So like one story is there was um, a guy I ran with in college and he was a transfer student um, and he had been, I think, at, I don't know, I don't remember where, Vanderbilt or something, but he had, you know, decided that wasn't his thing. And, you know, I don't know how much of this is really components of this are true in the first place anyway. I don't know. Right. But supposedly it's something like, oh, yeah, he used to smoke cigarettes. And then he decided to stop going to, um, or he decided he wanted to transfer, or go somewhere else. And he took some time off. And then he just started running 100 miles a week, I think is what, you know, he represented to me at the time. And maybe if you, uh, talk to him about this now, maybe he would have a different um, narrative by which to sort of try to explain what that process was like. But the story is, well, he just went out and just started running a lot and then he just got really good and he would sort of go around and generally share with everybody else on the team that, you know, they sucked because they just weren't, you know, running whatever like he did. Um, and I'm not questioning, you know, his proficiency as a runner. He, you know, especially in cross country was, you know, really great uh, cross country runner in particular. I uh, mean, he was like the be- best runner on the team for, you know, I think almost the entire time he was at Bates and that, you know, very cool. Right. Um, but in doing that training, right, there was also an applied intensity and there was also an applied frequency. Right. But this idea of the apocryphal transfer formation of 100 miles a week is just kind of kind of out there and it's the example of people taking the partial understanding and imposing that as essentially the understanding which is inevitably going to be very constraining in terms of what does that mean in terms of the understandings that people take away from that and cycling right there's this idea of first 20 hours a week um, and then you get up to 30 hours a week and it's taking numbers and applying symbolism to numbers because of their aesthetic appearance when discussed or when uh, talk uh, spoken about. And there's a grain of truth to that because there is some sort of critical point um, of like amount of activity at which you start to see improvement. Um, and so, right, th- that is true, right? But this idea that it would just so conveniently align with, A, the exact same quantity for everybody uh, just doesn't make sense. Um, you just don't have enough information about what 100 miles a week actually means for different people. In cycling, you don't have enough information about what 20 hours or a 30-hour a week means for different people to say that that's something that that can be compared. And, and talking about that, as this causality for transformation is a you know common denominator. I think I've probably discussed this before, but one of the experiences I had as a college athlete was you know, in high school we had a relatively, I think as is true for a lot of people, a relatively minimal amount of 
uh, exercise going on. And, you know, my experience coaching, it seemed to me that, you know, 50 to 60 miles a week, people would be improving pretty rapidly um, over the course of a season. And then if they did the sport throughout the year, the amount of improvement they would see across their four years in high school was pretty awesome. But of course, right to say 50 to 60 miles a week meant different things. But for me in high school, I think we usually ran 25 to 30 miles a week. Um, and then it was okay. Well, as a college runner, I need to do something differently. And, you know, in the fall of my freshman year, I was running probably 50 something miles a week. And then after that, I got into the idea of, well, now I'm going to train twice a day. And so I added a three mile run in the morning and then, okay, three mile run. That's another 21 miles a week. And so now I'm running 70 miles a week where now you're getting into like special numbers, right? For if you're really into distance running culture, you know that once you get to 70 miles a week, that's special, that's significant, you know, and there's a, there's a really romanticization of the significance of these numbers as training values. And I saw some big improvements, um, really big improvements between the previous year, which was my senior year in high school and my freshman year, by the end of the year, you know, running 70 miles a week for a big stretch of that time, um, basically from November through uh, into the beginning of April. And so, right, that sort of reinforced that belief of causality. And so then from then there, it was like, okay, then you go to 80 and then you go to 90 and then you go to 100, right? And there was this kind of basically these beliefs that are just sort of circulated within uh, just sort of the running culture space. You know, so then my thing for the next three years was just like getting to 80 miles a week. Um, and so like over the course of the summer, I would get up to by the end of the summer, I would be ready to I would be just then running 80 to 85 miles a week. And right, we would go on Mondays at practice and we'd be lying on the floor of the indoor track and Coach Fresh would be asking us, well, how many miles did you do? And I think probably... 60 to 75% of the people on the team just lied and said a number that they thought you wanted to hear. But those of us who are actually, you know, running a lot of miles, like we were <laughs> certainly putting the elbow grease in, in terms of the committing the additional time to do that. So we were happy to support those, uh, report those numbers. And we wanted those numbers, you know, to support, um, you know, hopefully the outcomes that we <laughs> thought we were going to get out of that. Right. So I'd happily be saying 80, 86, 88, 82, whatever. But, and then I would go out to the meets and I would run a lot, couldn't run under 30 minutes for 8K. And, you know, it should have been blatantly obvious at the time that I was just too tiring to do that, right? Because there's a big difference between somebody maybe just sort of like, oh, over the course of the summer, I just sort of am getting in, getting in better shape. And as I feel stronger, I'm running faster. And then as I'm running faster, I'm you know, necessarily going to run a couple more miles. And then, you know, you might go from running six or seven miles a day to nine or 10 miles a day pretty easily. And then somebody might go from running, you know, 50 miles a week to 70 miles a week, right? And that would just be in the process of getting in shape versus deliberately, you know, stacking up to get this number out of the belief that as long as I accumulate this number every, every week, something good is going to happen. Um, you know, it is true, and, and this is something to consider, um, you know, in the context of all this, 
one of the benefits of doing a lot of activity is it's much easier to control your body weight. Um, which is not to say that we need to be as skinny as possible, but anybody who's been at the point of being overweight knows how much of a limiting factor that is. And as much as I think and and respect the fact that we should never um, find our want to find ourselves, and certainly not want to potentially lead others into disordered eating, eating disorders, you know, um, mental health issues around food. I, I mean, to me, that's a, a given. That's not a discussion. Um, it's also the case that, you know, if you look at athletes overall, just all ages, all levels of participation, the more common issue is that, you know, people are struggling to find their way into the right range of body weight, at which point all the training starts to work really well. And as somebody who is, as an adult athlete has always been sort of on the margin of either, of either being over or struggling to just stay within the high end of that functional range when you're over that limit you know and as i'm sure some of the listeners know like it things just do not work uh you do not progress um you you know it's a real nightmare and in some ways that's a harder uh, aspect to consider so it's true that doing a lot of exercise is certainly one um way to try to address that limiting factor so there's that's one benefit there that i think is Sometimes can just sort of, if you're just going, you know, smashing your head against the wall, why you can see some improvement from that, you know, especially when you're doing that for the first time, you know, some people might lose 20 pounds of doing that training over a longer period of time. And maybe they're not going to really get any stronger per se, um, but losing 20 pounds can make a difference. But then that kind of leveling off effect starts to occur where whatever that just sort of generalized kinds of adaptations and changes to body mass, by the way, would be one of those adaptations. Those generalized adaptations become played out and that's just sort of where people are at. They end up sort of stuck. And, you know, right, where do you go from there? How do you improve from that point becomes a different issue or a different consideration. So the converse, uh, I guess, of the high volume is the low volume, right? And so with the low volume, you see a lot of discussion about the idea that, you know, high volume makes people slow. Um, and I mean, I, I, we've said on this podcast before, well, that fatigue makes people slow. And it is generally a correlate that if you do more and more and more exercise, you're probably going to get more fatigue, right? But that also factors into intensity and that also factors with frequency. These things also play a, a significant role, have a significant impact on what these outcomes start to look like. So, you know, this this low volume idea says, well, let's focus on the intensity and let's just do the intensity of this stuff, right? And so then you have these, and I don't, there's not really much to say there. It's just kind of the compared to the higher volume thing, it's just this idea of, well, just go out and you just, you know, do do some repetition training at the race pace that you're hoping to do. And the idea is, well, you just get tired and then you, you have to stop and then everything else is useless because the goal is to just practice the race pace until you get efficient at the race pace, which, you know, yes, there's been evidence historically for people doing that, but the levels of performance that people uh, reached through that approach have just been totally displaced by the levels 
that people reach when also doing just a higher volume of aerobic, easier aerobic activity. Like that is a foregone, uh, that should be a foregone conclusion. But I guess the reality is if we look at the landscape of how people actually try to approach training and practice, it looks like it's not a foregone conclusion because there's a lot of people out there trying to make an argument for this uh, stuff still, right? But, you know, you can continue to spin up on this, you know, high volume, low volume, you know, intensity oriented training and and these sort of simplified things, it's easy to stake out a position. And it's the same kind of like false consciousness behavior that we see in our culture politically, right? Where people act um, like, and they believe that they're talking about um, quotes, quotes, politics, but it's really just this rhetoric game where they're saying things that are meaningless and have no connection to the like actual process of policy and implementation that is actually done by the government. But those things are more uh, complex because there's more involved to the to those, right? So it's simpler to just try to f- spoon feed people this medicine of just sort of these like inanities that they'll just sort of cling to and they just have these, you know, very circular, banal uh, discourses that have no no meaning. But I think it's that allegory of the cave where until you break out of that space, to you that is real. Those are the relevant, quotes, quotes, issues, right? But they're not really issues. It's just a, it's just a total, basically, wild manipulation and just taking advantage of, of people's, preying on people's ignorance. Um, and we see that same kind of behavior playing out when we talk about training. And I think this can make it very hard for people trying to get into training for endurance sports in the first place. And then it also makes it, I think, equally hard, albeit maybe in different ways, for people who have already gotten into training. Maybe they've done a little, maybe they spent a lot of time doing it, and they've made that initial investment of time and energy and whatnot. And now they're just kind of like, and what? Right? Like, where do I go? I've sort of gotten this initial benefit of getting up off of the couch, of doing some a routine, and now I'm just sort of stuck. And usually what we do is we just tell people, oh, you're not talented, so that's it. Well, yeah, you're probably not going to be the world record holder because it's just we can't all reach that point. There, if that was the case, then the data of performance would just look very different. But the gap between the state people reach after kind of their initial foray or initial approach to training and then whatever that world record outlier performance is, is massive. So you still have plenty of potential room to improve um, without entering into this like, you know, sort of ego problem of like, oh, well, I'm just going to keep running until I'm a five minute mile or, you know, follow me as I you know, every day I'm posting every day until I break four minutes. That's like, gee, Willikers, if only posting things on the internet was the necessary training adaptation to break four minutes in the mile, um, you know, everybody in high school would be running under four minutes in the mile in gym class. It's just not, not how that stuff really works, obviously, right? But I mean, that in and of itself, frankly, is a representative of the way in which people sometimes try to understand causality is that think, well, like commitment and dedication. Okay. Uh, so what are examples of commitment and dedication? Uh, well, broadcasting to an audience about my exercise routine being important to me, um, 
Well, that that takes commitment and dedication. Well, I mean, I suppose you have to be committed and you have to dedicate whatever amount of time that takes for you every day to continue that narrative of your personal uh, fitness journey, if you will. There's a cringy phrase, fitness journey. Um, but that's not, you know, not all things of commitment and dedication lead to all things training, improvement and adaptation. So this is why figuring out what are the right questions are important, right? And you can get to a certain point of benefit just by increasing the amount of training and you can bet to us get to a certain point of benefit just by trying to increase the amount of intensity and you can also get to a benefit by increasing frequency. You know, some uh, sports, you know, believe in training twice a day. Some sports believe in training just in one session, um, like it's kind of a moot point in a sense, um, that there's in that sense, the frequency is more about, are you training frequently enough to keep the body's, uh, epigenetic response up and running, um, engaging with what you're doing. And I think that, right. It's that applying stress is engaging the central governor because presumably it's the brain regulating these epigenetic epigenetic responses, excuse me, and that like we're trying to keep those active, right? And so if you train once a week, you don't really improve, right? But so if you focus on any of these three questions individually, you're going to see some some benefits to that because just doing physical activity uh, where no physical activity was happening before is going to lead to adaptations, um, but the degree to which you can get adaptations is then after a certain point going to be driven by whether or not you're thinking about all three of these questions at this, uh, the same time. So if we think about this in a sort of metaphorical sense, kind of like the concept of you know physics and thermodynamics sense, um, like if we perform more work per fixed unit of time, then we apply that work over a fixed unit of time to a system, then the quicker the time to failure, all right? And if we define failure in this context as the cessation of that defined amount of work per fixed unit of time would be the logical definition of failure here, right? So as you increase that, right, it can't just tolerate that work indefinitely, right? That's increasing basically stress on that system, and at some point that system will collapse, right? So the body, though, has a unique mechanism, really combination of mechanisms, um, which is the epigenetic response to training, or we think of it as adaptation to stress, or just like getting stronger, becoming fitter. And if we induce training stress, which training stress must logically be um, intensity, frequency, and volume, and then a unit of training stress must be intensity, frequency, volume applied across a period of time, probably on the scale of weeks, days to weeks, um, somewhere in that time scale, then we're going to see a unit of improvement, which would be an appreciable difference such that we can um, go faster um, over a measured um, space of performance, right? We can apply a higher velocity 
without any additional strain and physical effort. A lot of times, especially like high school track and cross country, for example, um, people will make improvements over a short period of time. But a part of that is just sort of applying greater levels of sort of like um, intentionality to what they're doing. So, and this is where you get back into popular sports culture, defining commitment, dedication as this thing tied to like mental toughness. Um, and that really does become for a lot of people this pattern of causality. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that experience. A lot of us either gone through this phase or a lot of us have sort of been in that phase and we've never really thought about it differently. We've said on the podcast that when you take a body of uh, athletes and they all apply the same approach, some of them are necessarily going to get better results than others. And those people tend to then say, well, I'm the best relative to my peers. So clearly this works because the point of this, these sports is to be able to be competitive and finish um, at, you know, to be able to be there at the end, right? If you're running the mile, you want to be there at the, towards the front of the race with 150 meters to go and at least be in a position where you can delude yourself that you have a chance of winning, right? Um, whereas for people who are gone by the half a mile mark, uh, in the mile run, you're probably going to be think questioning whether or not your training is really working, right? So then people are going to point to the best people and they're going to say, well, and then they're going to say, well, this works. You just got to, you know, be tougher, right? Because their they, their perception of what they're doing is that they're being tougher and that's their explanation for what they consider to be the, the meaningful distinction or difference uh, between these athletes. So if we consider this, right? Let's give this some honest consideration, right? If we consider this, now it's true that your brain has a certain certain finite range, I suppose we could say, of tolerance for discomfort. So changes in body chemistry around arousal and response to training stress, you know, complexes in our um, brain and brain chemistry around interest, desire, motivation to achieve success, etc. All these things can contribute to reaching the maximum extent of that range. Um, and, you know, conversely, our level of fatigue can limit our ability to scale up to that range. But the reality is this is a very, very small extension of ability. And in a race among uh, equals, maybe pulling out a couple seconds or just getting that little bit of additional effort or sort of being like if you're coming to the line, you know, in a bike race and just sort of having that little bit more intentionality, mindfulness, right? And thinking, okay, I want to really pay attention to how when I initiate, open up this sprint, how I'm getting, you know, where I am in my gear ratio and that I'm really like concentrating and, you know, thinking actively about how can I, you know, get on top of the pedals in the way that is going to get me the most initial acceleration, for example. And that can make a difference, right? That might give you a bike length, right? But at the end of the day, we're talking about like all of our, you know, willpower, concentration, focus, all of these mystery qualities that we use to explain causality in athletes um, basically becomes comes down to, you know, a bike length, right? Or a couple yards in a running race. And in the context of that specific race or competition, 
well, maybe that's all that you needed, right? So in that context, you're going to really be validating and proving that that strategy was the right strategy of approach. But that's it. You're not going to continue to get more and more bike lengths. You're not going to continue to gain more and more yards or seconds on the competition by applying that, right? It just gives you this little bit of stretch um, and then at a certain point, you you reach the elasticity of that capacity. Um, the, tr- the true factor here, the real reason people can perform at a higher level um, is because the point at which they even begin to experience difficulty is much further up the possible level of skill uh, applied or work performed. And this be- happens because of changes to the body's physiology. Um, there's stuff about, you know, oh, the brain and training the brain which to me is the dumbest shit I've ever heard because uh, the brain is a physiological thing. So when we are training, when we're acting in the world, then that is uh, a physiological effect on the body and the brain is a part of the body. But we have this um, construct issue where we oftentimes think of the mind as something that somehow like is separate or independent of that. But, you know, I've said this on the podcast before. If you don't believe me, hit yourself in the head with an aluminum baseball bat a couple of times and you're going to find that, you know, your personality might start to become a little bit different. Um, you know, the brain is a, a real thing that responds to physiological changes, just like anything else. That's how consciousness uh, works. Just because we don't have great explanations for the mechanisms that shape and define and give us consciousness as organisms, as human organisms, uh, doesn't mean that they that they aren't there. It doesn't mean that we should discount that. And, you know, that's where things like the central governor uh, theory or the central governor model, depending on what you want to call it, that's, you know, pointing to the fact that the brain plays the significant role in, you know, regulating all of these functions, right? And you need the brain in order basically to have epigenetic responses. Now, that would be hard to uh, study to prove because you'd have to probably induce some sort of like brain death and then keep the body, uh, the rest of the body alive and then somehow try to get the body to then do exercise and see if training adaptations would occur. Um, that's like probably sounds like one of the most unethical potential studies of all time, probably not really feasible anyway. Um, but like, you're not going to see anything happen. I don't think because again, the brain has to be present and active and fulfilling its its role, um, which is it's right. A regulatory system in our body, I think is one simple way to think about what role the brain plays. And so when we apply the right answers to the questions about intensity, fatigue, Um, sorry, intensity, uh, frequency, and volume, a big part of what we're doing is we're essentially regulating fatigue, um, which is then impacting our ability to practice well and practice effectively, right? Because to practice effectively, we have to practice within proficiency and we have to practice a lot. And that's how people get better at things. So when we're talking about endurance sports, that means in order to reach that state of where we practice a lot and we practice within our uh, proficiency, but at the outer bounds of that, then we need to figure out we, we can't do that without finding the right balance, the right relationship of exercise in terms of intensity, volume, and frequency and the interplay 
between these three areas. Now, why is this hard for people to appreciate? Well, I think because stories about people doing things because they're relatively comfortable and they're relatively easy and that athletes are just sort of goofing off as much as anybody else um, doesn't really capture our imagination. You know, I think you look at the, and obviously there's been ebbs and flows to this, but, you know, the popularity of something like boxing and the, at least in the past, you know, being something like that being so popular, I think it really feeds into this, the myth of somebody being brought to the brink um, and then the difference maker being some some act of will. Um, and then I think people have really jumped on uh, the narrativization if I'm making up a word, it's a good one. The narrativization of sports and how like growth and achievement occurs is we need to show people struggling and overcoming significant suffering and adversity because that's what's exciting for people to think about. That's what they like to fill uh, basically in their imagination because um, that romanticized experience is exciting um, and it captures people's imagination um, and it you know feeds into our belief our beliefs and our desire to believe in the power of individualism um, but the actual phenomena is that we make systemic changes through the act of training um, we don't sort of will ourselves up to this in- incredible level um, you know so determining the nature of what's most effective is what's important you know figuring out well what constitutes a unit of training, a unit of training being something that leads to a particular uh, measurable volume or responsive improvement. So it doesn't matter where we start, but we're going to talk about, I think, intensity in particular first, because I think that this is where people oftentimes are most inclined to make mistakes. Um, I think frequency is relatively easy to not um, overreach because most people lack the motivation or the available time to train too frequently. I think for a lot of people, if you can train once every day, that's pretty awesome. Um, training twice a day is is pretty uh, unusual. Um, and then people who train try to train twice a day every day, that's like extra extra weird. Um, but if you do more than one endurance discipline, like you kind of start to find that you're pushed into that anyway. Like if you want to feel good with running and cycling, then you got to do both, right? And if you only do one on any given day, you're going to learn pretty quickly that your running and your cycling aren't going to really feel very good. But if you do um, some of both every day, then you're going to be able to feel like you can really run and you can really ride. Um but right, so right there, we, the other thing we see is that volume is that, you know, most people are also going to tend to recognize pretty quickly that, well, you have to kind of actually do it, right? And even if for some people that's 30 minutes a day, right, you're, you're tending to apply volume um, over, over time, I think is also something that starts to play out a little bit more easily. But when people want training schedules, that's usually what they want. They want to be told, what days do I exercise and how much, what do I do on those days in terms of how much, 
Okay. And then people tend to worry very little about intensity. But I think if you don't have uh, the intensity figured out and then you try to venture into this stuff, it's usually that's probably one of the number one things that leads to problems um, and, you know, disruption. I think it leads people to sort of disappear from participating in this stuff. So if we think about, uh, you know, running is a really good example um, because to recognize the value of intensity. So if you're riding a bike, it's really easy to feel like, oh, I'm out on my bike ride and I'm riding, but to like actually basically be doing no intensity where you're just like rolling down the road on parts of your ride and you're not pedaling, um, you know, or you're riding and pedaling so easily that you're really basically doing nothing any more than walking or maybe even easier than walking. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. If you just want to be physically active, to be physically active, that's fine. But if you're looking for improvement, you know, hey, that's not really going to get you anywhere. But with running, like the sort of minimal amount of force needed to get yourself moving and running is just so much higher. And usually what you see um, with running is that people sort of go out and they start running at a speed that's just way too difficult, just completely unsustainable, right? And wherever they learned running, you know, whether that was sort of thinking back to what maybe in their brain running was like when they were a kid and they weighed 60 pounds, <laughs> you know, but the reality is when you were a kid and you were running on the playground, you would run for 50 feet, right? You'd run for a couple seconds and then you'd stop. You know, when you watch kids run, they're not running for miles and miles, right? They're just running a little burst for, you know, five seconds and then they stop. And if, you know, kid runs from one side of the playground to the other, they're going to, you know, you know, they're going to be out of breath, right? And so when you try to go back to your concept of running and what it feels to run, um, people are going to go out and be applying an intensity that's just way too hard. And like, yeah, sometimes you can be like, I'm out here, I'm running, I'm excited, right? My muscles aren't tired because I haven't been doing a lot of training um, and, yet you, and you do it and then you're done and then you're exhausted, right? And then some people will just sort of keep grinding like that. Some people will start to get better, um, but a lot of people you, you don't. You you get injured. You just sort of stay stuck at that level. You end up then doing less and less running and you don't, people hate running, right? Running is not something that people should dislike. It's a form of movement that's a natural form of movement, right? There's nothing about running that's the problem. It's people don't like it, like being uncomfortable, right? So if you don't like running, it's not that you don't like running. It's that you don't like being uncomfortable because your body doesn't want you in that state because you're just wasting energy, right, for, for no purpose. So you need to change your intensity. So really, when we think about intensity, reason why it's so critical to know the intensity is because intensity is basically how pacing works, right? Our perception of exertion is ultimately the basis on which we, we pace ourselves. And yes, you can use a heart rate monitor or a power meter, um, or you can look at your speed or any of these other ex sort of external or internal factors that are then exhibited on an externally uh, displayed device. But ultimately, if you do this stuff enough, you start to sort of recognize automatically like, oh, if I go any harder than this, I, I can't keep this up. Or if I want to feel easy and relaxed at the end of this nine mile run, 
then I can't, I need to stay at this level of exertion, right? You learn that stuff through experience. That's pacing in response to your perception of intensity. Um, but then people think, well, if I really want to get better, I have to ratchet up the intensity. So more intensity is not more rewarding. Um, it's actually very quickly starts to become less valuable um, because of the fact that you're just putting yourself in a state where now your frequency and your volume aren't going to be able to be what they need to be. To get responses from training, to get stronger, you don't set an intensity and then keep doing volume at that intensity to the point where no matter how much more grit you apply, you're just paralyzed from being able to continue to apply that intensity. That's not how we get better at things. Um, intensity is the factor of epigenetic response, though. So we do want to apply intensity because we're trying to apply a stress at the point where the body is going to make the kinds of adaptations that we want. Um, you know, but at the same time, like we can't prove that doing 100 miles a week of sprint training um, would not lead to the same kinds of responses of 100 miles a week of sub-threshold running because you literally, you can't in the course of a week do 100 miles of maximum intensity sprinting no matter how you broke down that, that rest. It's just not feasible. You can't play that out. The amount of exhaustion that you're going to incur is just overwhelming. You'd have to be sprinting all out 15 miles every single day which means you have to break those down into 40, 20 to 40 meter increments of work. And you'd have to be taking like five to six minutes of rest. And it's just, it's just not feasible. It's not possible. So we can't compare volume to volume, but that's again, why we know that, you know, volume is, is relevant, right? Because if all that matters was intensity, then the fastest sprinter would also be the best um, performer at any length of event or race beyond the shortest sprint discipline. So like a six, the, the uh, best 60 meter uh, runner in indoor track would also have the world record in the marathon and would win ultra marathons. And that's just not, we, we know that's not the case. Um, and when we're trying to figure out how to apply Intensity, then people start looking to models of intensity, right? So people go a little bit more beyond this idea of like going all out versus going easy. Um, and I think we can think of like some couple different lump categories for this. One would be the kind of idea of searching for the holy grail metric, something like VO2 max, which is trying to quantify the extremis of performance for endurance. And then trying to train around improving that characteristic. Um, and I think that that doesn't work. The VO2 max thing is just you can't really separate VO2 max from just basically asking somebody what's your PR in the mile, which is why Jack Daniels, Daniels running formula VDOT table is based on like your PR in a race distance because there's just basically no real meaningful distinction um, between that, all that VO2 max research has really proven is that VO2 max is not a great predictor of performance. Because if VO2 max was such a great predictor of performance, then like we would just know exactly how fast people can do based on VO2 max, max testing, and that's just not the case.
Um, another characteristic of intensity would be the race metric. And what the race metric would mean is looking at, okay, what race event do you want to do? And then uh, doing uh, your intensity is practicing that velocity or building up towards that velocity, okay? Um, and again, as with, you know, Holy Grail training, um, whether that's around VO2 max or some other, you know, ridiculous criteria, um, you're applying stress. You're going to get epigenetic response as long as, you know, your frequency and volume are relatively, you know, moderate. Um, you're going to see some levels of response or adaptation, right? But the question is not, can you create some? It's very easy to create any level of fitness improvement. The question is really, how good can you be? Um, like, what's the most optimal, efficient way to train? How does opportunity cost help us understand the best way to train? Um, another idea of intensity could be the idea of the workout as a performance metric. Um, we did this a lot in college, basically, where it was like, here's the workout. And then the goal is to go as fast as you can, you know, the best possible velocity you can do for that workout. So if the workout is five times a mile with two minutes of recovery, well, then the idea is the best intensity is to run each of those reps as fast as you can. And this would lead to, uh, you know, a bunch of people on the team running sometimes the last repeat of a mile repeat workout and um, 440 something or sometimes even under 440. And yet, right, where what where were the six or seven guys running 2430 for 8K? There were none of that was was playing out, right? And so that's where evaluating the effectiveness of training, right, relative to performance in competition, assuming that's your goal is significant. Now, if your goal is to do cool workout things, then I guess that doesn't really matter. And they were accomplishing, they got, you know, their, their race was the workout, the workout that was their performance. And then when they got to the race, they were tired and they, you know, couldn't do very well. And then, you know, what I've talked about a lot on this podcast, you know, which is evident to people who've listened a lot to the, to Black Hats Run is that, you know, something like lactate threshold, Right, which is identifying something though that's different from the previous three, because the previous three, whether that's looking for a holy grail metric like VO2 max, um, whether that's looking at uh, you know a race specific uh, model of intensity where you're trying to do race pace or race wattage or whatever, um, or whether that's you know maximizing your uh, PR for a given workout, all of those things are looking at, you know, the extreme, this idea of like taking yourself and applying the intensity to the point of failure is the best way to the best way to train, right? So like when you do, even if you do a workout like eight times 400 at, you know, under mile race pace, like running eight times 400 at 64, but you're struggling to consistently run under 440, maybe in the mile, um, well, is that really an effective workout? I would say no, um, partly because if you're just going out to race and you just feel dead, um, then you're clearly not maximizing your potential, right? Maybe somebody could argue, well, those 64s, that's the only way they're able to break 440 in the first place. But the problem is if they're like, I just felt great and I'm, I'm really powerful and I ran 439, 
okay, maybe there's some validation to that. But if they're doing these workouts and then they go to the race and they run the first lap in 70 and they feel absolutely friggin' smoked, well, then clearly something isn't isn't translating because if they can run a 64 in the workout, then they should certainly be able to run a 60. Like the issue should be not running a 64 in the first lap versus oftentimes that's you know, for most a lot of athletes, that's not the case. Right. So, but with lactate threshold as a strategy to identify intensity, right? This is trying, this is not at a point of extremis. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's difficult for people to accept and understand um, lactate threshold as a concept because all of our ideas of like how do you benchmark and pace training is this idea that you're trying to find this point of like struggle or difficulty and then just work at that for an extended period of time. And if you work at that for an extended period of time, hey, then you're going to see these improvements. Um, and that's simply not how how that works. Um, you know, and we've talked about this on other episodes. I'm not going to get go into and repeat all of those, you know, considerations right now. But finding an intensity, right, you want to find an intensity that leads to the most improvement. So lactate threshold is like taking a specific benchmark of efficiency, right? Just saying, well, like that going back to the idea of like the body has the capacity to basically change the the intensity at which sort of thermodynamic type strain, thermodynamic type decay starts to incur, right? And then you can reach so a finding an intensity that allows you to go faster with the same effort um, is an effective intensity. And so if you have a different kind of intensity other than lactate threshold and theory that would allow you to do that, then that would be great, right? You know, that, and that would be the idea, would be to find the best possible intensity that by spending time at that intensity, you see the outcome of improvement um, in performance in terms of like, I can go faster without trying or exerting myself to any additional degree beyond what I did before, right? Where now, for example, now I'm doing 300 watts with the same level of effort it once took me to do uh, 200 watts, or I'm running a 530 mile where at once I could only run a six-minute mile. That's meaningful improvement, and that's the right concept of intensity here, right? And that's where like intense like as a characteristic we think of people being like really focused and engaged and grinding things to dust, right? But that's a de- that would be a degree of intensity, right? See, because intensity isn't like a point, it's a spectrum, okay? So we're trying to find the point on that spectrum where we get the most out of that. And so if we identify that intensity, that's our pacing strategy for the rest of our training. And the rest of our training is applied through volume, um, of training and then frequency of training. So if you have identified a concept of intensity and you've identified something um, that's effective or arguably ineffective, um, how are you going to know if that is effective or ineffective, right? So one approach would be to say, well, I'm using the right uh, definition of an intensity regulator. I'm using the right approach to intensity, what I would suggest is that the way you know if you're using the right approach to intensity is if then by spending time um, training at that intensity, you exhibit improvement, 
right? And again, we go back to earlier in this episode, um, we talked about the idea of our, we have a capacity to sort of extend um, our effort, right? Our concentration, our intent, um, our resistance to adversity to some modest degree, not nearly to the degree that has been uh, romanticized in so many different contexts, but in in so doing, um, you know, we can improve performance. But what we're hoping is that at this level of intensity, right, if that intensity also should pair as it should, as it should, uh, it also should pair with a perceived exertion, then at that perceived exertion, then we should be exhibiting greater velocity. Uh, if you use a power meter in the context of running or uh, riding a bike or what have you, then you would exhibit an increase in uh, watts. A simpler way to think about this would be the idea that, you know, you might now be, you know, lifting heavier weights um, without feeling that the weight is subjectively any heavier than a previously objectively lighter weight. And it's through the volume that we ultimately determine if that's going to be effective. Because, you know, I think a core um, principle of practice, right, practice meaning patterns of engagement with any given skill, exercise, or discipline that lead to measurable improvement, um, a core principle that is volume, that there's a point at which you have started to do enough activity to exhibit improvement, and then there's going to be a, and that's sort of the minimum effective volume. Um, and if all you're looking for is, I just want to exhibit some improvement, you can find that minimum and be content with that. Um, as you increase that volume, you're going to see, once you reach that point of um, response threshold, right, minimum volume to for training response or adaptation, as you continue to increase your intensity, um, excuse me, we don't want to increase our intensity uh, in terms of the like actual level of intensity, but if you, in a sense, do more volume at intensity, that's factoring a different kind of intensity. So by changing our volume, we then also start to change the intensity of what we do because the uh, epigenetic pressure um, we're putting on the body is greater. So like one response to training could be chronic exhaustion. Another response could be uh, injury. Um, those are also consequences of maybe doing too much intensity. Um, and volume is one way to do too much intensity. But if you think of volume just in and of itself, to the extent that that's possible, of course, because one of the things we're saying on this episode is you can't think about intensity, volume, and frequency as autonomous. You have to like establish the boundaries of these three things in order to create the act that is training. Um, there's going to be a outlay of volume at which point you're going to see as you start to add volume in excess of that point, you're going to see diminishing returns. Whereas up to that point, for each additional unit in volume, you showed additional benefits, right? Then you start to see a declining return. Um, and at that point, right, you've sort of exceeded the volume for that. And so what is going to be determinant of that? Well, that's where this interplay between intensity and volume comes into play. Like we said, you cannot, as a runner do 100 miles a week of sprint training because of the uh, time needed to um, 
recover and recuperate such to allow every sprint of those 100 miles to be at that genuine sprint, that maximum intensity, right? We're saying sprint is analogous to maximum exertion. Um, it, it just doesn't, it's not feasible logistically to be able to do that because you wouldn't have enough time to like sleep and eat um, and, you know, do other things that make it worth being alive. And even if you sacrificed all those things, right, would it still uh, be be realistic, right? And that's a, that would be an extreme version of demonstrating the concept that there's a point of volume at which you don't continue to get more benefit. Um, and just as people think that if you do a work that the purpose of identifying intensity is to then do a workout and do the most possible intensity, the most dramatic level of effort possible across the space of that workout. Um, some people also believe that the purpose of volume is to do the most possible uh, volume that you can do. And that as much as you you slow down or speed up to that effect. Um, but what you're trying to do with volume is you're basically trying to take your intensity and you're trying to increase the amount that you can do of that intensity over the course of a year, a month, a week, a day, uh, a training session, um, you know, the number of repetitions, the length of repetitions, the shortness of rest and recovery. And, you know, a big part of that then has to do with your ability to handle volume as a function or an expression or a reflection of your ability to manage kind of the stamina demand of what you're trying to execute, um, as well as the endurance demand. Stamina, I like to make a distinction between endurance and stamina because I think we can say stamina is more specifically representative of, you know, how long can you endure at a given intensity, whereas I like to think of endurance as a way to maybe just sort of represent the idea of like, can you get from point A to point B, no matter how much your velocity um, is perhaps like declining across that times. Like a lot of people, you know, who do marathons, which is probably like the most popular, at least in Western culture, certainly in American culture, the most popular version of like a super endurance uh, event. Most people are doing that purely on endurance, right? People at some point are starting to slow down and then their goal is to reach the the finish line. And that's generally celebrated. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about how, you know, as you have more and more experience in this stuff, like the idea of like, oh, I need to finish. I need to get to the finish line starts to become increasingly meaningless because you're doing this stuff because it's rewarding and satisfying. And um, right when we're taught when we're younger, don't quit, don't give up, you know, you got to you know, go all in. But that's the idea of like going to the point of failure and just continuing to go is valuable. Uh, but not only might that not be valuable from a training perspective, but it might also not be valued from a competition perspective that I think, you know, unless you have something to prove to yourself by just completing um, something, like maybe it's okay to just be like, nope, I don't have it today. You know, you know, because you can eventually you get to the point where you can recognize if something is within or outside of your capacity to do that. Um, but within this concept of uh, volume, let's try to get a little bit more centered around this concept instead of wandering off in different directions. Um, like with this concept of volume, right, we're trying to do is we're trying to move past what we talked about earlier 
of this pointless dichotomy dialogue of like, I'm a low volume, I'm high volume person, because there isn't low or high volume per se. There, the low volume would be really the volume at which you're not seeing uh, meaningful changes or real changes in fitness. And high volume would be volume at which you're also not seeing really cha- real changes in fitness. So the real question is, when you're in that space, um, where you're past the point of volume too low, but you're below the point of volume too high, where do you want to trend in that regard? And I think that has to do with the fact that as you train more, you can exhibit a greater level of first endurance and then stamina in your training. And that what you're trying to do then is find that boundary, right? And I can't tell you what that boundary is because it's different for different people. Uh, An example of this is I find that if I'm doing uh, threshold training and the rest intervals are much longer than really 30 seconds to 90 seconds, uh, I don't really seem to exhibit um, training benefit from that. So if I'm doing, for example, 12 by 800 um, and I might take um, 30 seconds of rest between each rep, right? Because basically the point of the rest here is to maximize the volume of training that I can do because I'm increasing the number of 800s I can do. And it's not necessarily about the 800s, but the 800s are you know units of work at threshold. And so by breaking that up in that regard, right, now I'm doing you know, six-ish miles, right? And let's say I'm running, I don't know, let's just think of something moderate. Let's say you're running those at seven minute to 7.30 pace. So let's say you're doing those in three and a half minutes to three minutes and 45 seconds. Well, you're doing, you know, at least 42 minutes of work. Um, and then the 30-second intervals are there because that in, increases that, right? And it, what it does is it's then, reg, again, regulating Fatigue, which is sort of the essential uh, opposition to training success, right? A lot of people have traditionally essentially taken fatigue as the indicator um, that their training is going to be sufficient to lead to improvement. And there's this like weird anxiety that people have where it's like they don't want to be fatigued because then they know really that they basically can't execute the training. But then if they're not feeling fatigued, they're questioning whether or not Um, They're actually improving. And I think sometimes we take those kinds of anxieties and we feed them as if those feelings are like telling us something and that like we know if we're training or not based on our sense of um, mental, um, emotional, intellectual, emotional equilibrium around our level of activity. But that really that equilibrium is like something that's been constructed into our perception and we can unlearn that or, you know, more effective would be to not teach people to think about that this way in the first place. So, but when you're using your, your volume, you're really just applying volume to the point of, am I seeing response? And then what if I do 13, 800s or 14, 800s or 15, 800s, or what if I increase the length of the recovery? What if I Increase the length of the interval. What if I decrease the length of the recovery? What if I decrease the length of the interval? And what you're you're not changing at this point is you're not changing the intensity of like what you're doing over you know the number of watts that you're trying to do for your intervals, but you're changing 
you now have a different way of changing the intensity in terms of the demand of the training by changing the volume. But then you're trying to manipulate the volume in such a way that you're not reaching the point of fatigue because you can do, say, a few days, a week, 10 days of training um, and really feel like, oh, I'm really getting after it. And then you get exhausted. And we used to do this when I was you know, a kid and then when I was in college you know, in the summer, right? You know, if you're a runner, right, summer is kind of this, the period of nostalgic optimism buildup. I guess now you look back at it nostalgically, but at the time it was this period of sort of buoyant optimism that, oh, I'm going to get in really good shape and I'm going to go to cross country and this time things are going to be different. <laughs> and in hindsight, you look back and you realize, well, things basically never were different. Um, most people didn't exhibit a change. Um and I think that's because we didn't really know how to take advantage of that window of time uh, to have things like sort of be more impactful, be more effective. And the reality is high school level, a lot of athletes just don't really aren't going to run over the summer. They aren't going to work out. I mean, I had input from stakeholders who who told me that it was bad to run over the summer. Um, which I was like, okay, we're not making cookies in the oven here. <laughs> we're not going to burn burn these baked goods. Like we're like building and we're adapting. Um, but so if you are though at the point where you're trying to train, I think trying to train through a phase where you have no uh, series of races. And here I mean something different than people who go and oh well, I just train for twelve weeks towards this my one or two marathons a year. I'm talking about people who would be willing to do you know, a variety of different races throughout the course of a year, well, having a, a extended period of two to three to four months where you don't do any racing can sometimes um, be a good way to kind of get a better handle on how much volume is effective. Because you can do in the short term, you know, you can be doing training and it could feel like it's sustainable and go well, but sometimes that fatigue because of, you know, social factors, but also just genuine uh cumulative training fatigue factors take a while to accumulate and build up. And, you know, so in the summers, we would have this experience where we would go and we would be running, you know, pretty steadily. And like everything was like kind of hard. You know, at the time, I didn't really think of it that way. Um, But, you know, knowing um, now kind of where the level of perceived exertion was uh, for threshold and how modest that actually really is, um, we were basically going out running and then cycling well over threshold multiple days. In, and then you would go out one day and you multiple days in a row and you go out one day and you just absolutely crash. Um, and then like for three or four days, you just absolutely be dragging. Right. And you just couldn't really, you know, move. It felt like, and then by going so slow, eventually you would sort of start to feel better again. And then it would go back into that cycle. Right. And this sort of back and forth, and that would be an example of not having a balanced volume, you know. And yes, it did lead to, compared to the fitness at the beginning of the summer to the end of the summer, you know, the fitness was improving, but it was just kind of like a totally mindless um, process, right, that was just based on either, well, as I just do a lot of activity and I'm out here going kind of hard, you know, then I'm going to get I'm going to get better. And if I really want to get better, the more 10-mile runs I can do faster, the better it's going to be. I had a high school cross country athlete that, you know, I coached whom, you know, their senior year, they were, I think, really motivated to be 
the best runner on the team, which, you know, not an unreasonable ambition. They were a very good middle distance runner for sure. Um, and they showed up and they were like, you know, in the top three runners at the first meet. And, you know, but by the end of the season, they had gone from being somebody who potentially was looking at breaking 16 minutes to, you know, running 20 to 21 minutes for 5K. And I think some of that had to do with the, you know, sort of psychological effect. Um, but what they, you know, were obviously very frustrated, right? And so that what I mean by the psychological effect is I think they're accumulated you know, they were fatigued when they would go to race and they couldn't race well. Um, and they fatigue built up and then we, you know, we transitioned to doing, you know, specific training sessions and they were, you know, demo trying to demonstrate their fitness, right. To themselves, to everybody. And it might've even not even thought about it that way in practice, but that's essentially what it, what it, what, what it's doing, right. Is testing yourself, proving yourself, um, right. And that the belief that, okay, this is what's going to pay the bills. And, you know, you know, they just got to the point of exhaustion. Then I think you just start to become mentally uh, flat because it just feels frustrating and it's not feeling the way that you want. And then if you have a disconnect between your expectations um, and the reality, that's really challenging. Um, you know, and at a certain point, right, you know what, the season is just kind of like a wash, because it's going to maybe take you a month to start feeling better. And in the grand scheme of things as an athlete, a month is really not a big deal. But when you're talking about cross country, right, which is basically, you know, a let's say just approximately for most people is basically a two month window. Um, well, if you need that three to four weeks to kind of regroup, that's not a big deal. But in the scope of the season, well, now the season is gone. Um and right, how do you adapt to that? How do you adjust to that? That's challenging. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to go back to doing what they were doing over the summer, which, you know, was a lot of that was regularly cranking out this, you know, really hilly, basically 15 kilometer, 10 mile loop, um, you know, at 630 pace or something like that. And that's one of those right other factors, right, is that they were driving up the intensity and they were associating, well, I was feeling better when I was doing this, so I need to go back and, and do that, right? But that would just be like, okay, doing more, you know, volume for no, for like no particular logical reason. It's just a belief that, well, I need to go back to this particular balance. And then that's going to, I feel the way I feel in proportion to the training that I'm doing. But the, we feel the way we feel in proportion to the level of fatigue. Right. And so what had happened there was like a mismanagement of fatigue. And obviously that's a, you know, that's what you're trying to do as a coach and an athlete is you're trying to figure out and recognize, okay, what's going on? Where are we trending? How are we feeling? What can we do to try to feel differently? And sometimes you get to a point where it's just like, yes, we can correct this, but it's just going to take a certain amount of time to make those, to make those changes. And you know, I think that's also where, you know, our concept of what our outcomes should be is, is important. And I think what we need to be able to do when we're thinking about training is we need to say that, okay, I'm doing the amount of volume that's appropriate and reasonable. Doing more than this isn't going to get me any additional benefits. Um, so, you know, I have to be able to accept where I'm at right now. And, you know, if I still have this goal to get to X level and I'm not hitting that level right now, 
okay, let's think about, well, how long do I think it's going to take to get there and what can I be doing that's going to move me towards that end? There's nothing wrong with recognizing that, but you can't all indefinitely manipulate the volume to be at the level that that you want, right? Um, because as you increase volume, and this is the great example of like, as you increase volume, you start to feel, you know, worse, right? But when it was summer and, you know, they didn't have, they weren't going to school and, you know, they were able to go out and do these runs and then they didn't have to go out and do, you know, for example, just doing the race efforts is inducing a whole additional level of fatigue because now you're pushing to a level of muscular exertion um, and demand that you aren't during that summer period because all you're doing is focusing on those runs. So when you're changing the environment in which you're working out and training, you need to be willing to make those adaptations. And so this brings us to the point of frequency, that frequency is the distribution of the volume and the intensity of training. And if we think about this properly, right, we recognize that frequency, intensity is probably the most important thing to understand. Um, Volume is the thing that people uh, tend to most oversimplify and frequency is the most important thing to be able to plan. And I think a big part of planning training effectively is being able to look and recognize and understand what is the appropriate frequency of the, the training um, pattern. And I think, for example, um, a lot of people conventionally feel that they have to do one of each quote-unquote kind of workout right? Or that there's all these different intensities that they need to be hitting in a, in a week. And then they, they gravitate towards that outcome. Um, and you know, again, right. If everybody is using that same thought process, then some people are obviously going to be better than others. And so you're going to get this kind of like weirdly false positive. Oh yeah, that is what you should be doing. Um, but like mindlessly doing, um, you know, repeat whatever's or, FTP bullshit or, um, you know, doing the long run or the long ride or whatever the case may be, these things that just sort of become ritualistic, that's not the right way in which to assess frequency. What you want to be doing with frequency is you need to try to figure out, okay, what is this, what is the level of fatigue that we can anticipate? Um, how many days can we train like X? until the fatigue is likely going to be at a point where going out and training like X is now going to be dramatically inducing fatigue. So like if you're training at using lactate threshold and you've identified that correctly, you should be able to do two to three sessions of that in a row. And it's more effective to do them in a row because you're maintaining that epigenetic boost. Um, And then, but if you just keep doing them consecutively without any sort of uh, intermission, between this, the consecutive days of lactate threshold training, at some point you're going to get start to see increasing fatigue outcomes um, from the same kind of training. So if you do it two or three days in a row, you you know you might be on the fourth day. Let's say you might be like, oh, I'm kind of tired. I'm glad I'm just going easy. But if you go and you go a fourth day and a fifth day, then you get to that sixth day, and now it's like, whoa! Now it's going to start to feel like you know, you're walking around with a pile of bricks in a backpack and that's a stronger level of fatigue response 
than we would have seen or exhibited previously. And those are the kinds of things that you have to understand with frequency of training is it's not, question is not, should you train every day? Should you train twice a day? The question is really figuring out, well, how much fatigue can you push into? Because I think like the reality is you are going to take on fatigue. You're going to sometimes go up the stairs and feel a little bit, you know, gassed. And you're going to sometimes, you know, get to the top of the staircase and you're going to think, well, I can run 10 miles and then get on my bike and ride 60 miles. Um, and then I can go out the next day and do a 20 mile run. Um, but I go up, you know, 10 stairs and I get to the top and I'm like, whoa, that feels a little bit tired. But there's a difference between that right? It would maybe be a reasonable level of fatigue but versus like feeling like you are absolutely dragging yourself up the staircase. Well, then that might be at beyond that point. So again, right, this idea of we answer these three questions because what we want to do is regulate fatigue. Um, the frequency of applying training, um, again, the question is not do we train once a day or twice a day? That's an oversimplification to the point of sort of being irrelevant. Um, the question is, what are you trying to do? And then depend, because this is the thing, right? Is if you don't identify uh, the intensity, and then if you don't identify, well, what volume of work do you want to be doing for this intensity, then you can't figure out, well, how frequently can I do this, right? Because if you want to do longer sessions of threshold work, Right. Maybe you can only do if you want to do two hours of threshold intervals, then that might be once a day. And maybe that's something where you can only do that twice a week. Right. But is that more beneficial than doing, um, you know, less lengthy sessions, but doing this three times a week or four times a week? Is that is that better? Right. And that's where, again, these ability to measure response is important. Um, and if you don't have a system to sort of determine, are you responding, then that's that's an issue. But you can also tell if like fatigue, if you can't keep up with the training plan you've mapped out or you can't keep up with that frequency, um, that's another sign that you're not improving. Um, and, you know, that will happen is that you'll just start avoiding it. Uh, you'll you'll lose interest in, in trying to do do it. And you see that happen with athletes all the time is they just won't engage with this stuff consistently. And so frequency is mapping that and, and planning that. So it's a little bit harder in a way to kind of give a good example for that. But let's look at um, easy interval method by Klaus Lux as an example. So he gives an example of a schedule, training week schedule for, you know, people looking to train to seven to eight sessions a week, he says, hoping to run well in the 10K. But he also makes the point, which I totally agree with, that this idea that you train differently for different events is basically absurd. All the training is just kind of more or less the same. But if events start to become beyond a certain length, then you have to make sure you're emphasizing endurance. So he suggests doing on Monday uh, 10 by 400s or 6 by 1,000 meters or 4 to 5 by 2,000 meters. And so this is a running workout Right. But you could think about this concept being equivalent to a different sport and change the interval distances to interval times. Um, on Tuesday, he suggests in the morning doing 35 to 50 minute endurance run with surges. Um, he suggests doing then in the afternoon 
10 by 400s or 15 by 200. On Wednesday, he says do six by 1,000. On Thursday, a 30 to 50 minute endurance run with surges. And then in the afternoon, doing 15 by 200. On Friday, doing 10 by 400. Saturday, rest. Um, Sunday, an endurance uh, with surges. And when you look at this, right, your concept of intensity and the appropriate volume for any given intensity is going to determine whether or not you would agree with this frequency, okay? But his intervals are based on the concept of lactate threshold. For example, he describes doing his thousands oftentimes at a pace of about, uh, you know, his marathon pace. And he also talks about, like, for the fast endurance run, which he only suggests uh, easier, moderate endurance runs here, for the fast endurance run, he said, you know, he suggests that that's really only something being run at your slowest 1K rep paces, and that's he suggests doing 6 to 10K, right? So when you think about it like that, you start to realize, okay, like the intensity and the volume and the frequency are all interdependent. But if you look at it with a, the wrong paradigm, you're just going to see, well, that's intervals, 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 like that there's intervals like, all you know, five or six days, five or six sessions a week. But when he's doing the six times a thousand, for example, or, um, you know, he talks about warming up for 15 to 20 minutes. Um, then he says you run the thousand and then you walk for 30 seconds and then you jog for, you know, around a half a mile and then you walk for 30 seconds and then you do another thousand. Well, that's a very easy, easy workout. I mean, for me, I find that I don't really, if the recovery is that long, I'm not really going to get, show measurable, uh, meaningful improvements over the course of a four to five week period working out with all my intervals with that long recovery. Now, that doesn't mean that the purpose is to decrease the recovery. If you have a different level of endurance or stamina, then that might be different. But this goes to frequency, is that you're engaging with this level of work um, more frequently, right? Every, you know, instead of doing two, quotes, quotes, faster workouts a week, now you're practicing, you're engaging with that um, level of intensity every day. So now your possibilities in terms of your frequency have changed dramatically. And that doing these six by 1000s takes sort of the place of the generic, uh, oftentimes undefined uh, training session. And that's something that we should talk about on a future episode is, you know, so much of our training time, at least under very, you know, more commonplace approaches with the class lux thing, you're basically saying, well, let's apply intervals to all of this stuff. Um, which is a different way to regulate intensity, volume, and frequency. And central to his book um, is basically this idea of like, how are you managing fatigue? And, you know, Marius back and you see that too. And that's where there's, it's a really, um, I think, different paradigm from what a lot of us are taught in terms of the answer to these three questions is the answer to these three questions is how can we maximize intensity, volume, and frequency? But instead, we want to be using these to, regulate fatigue as much as possible. And that's what we see in his example schedule is it's a regulation of fatigue. And so any given schedule is only meaningful based on the ability to correctly identify the 
intensity at which you need to work to then distribute the volume of that intensity and then determine at what frequency should we be applying the volume of intensity. And that ultimately needs to be the point of um, where are we seeing measured improvement. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, recommend Black Hats Run to anybody you know who you think might be interested. If you have any questions or thoughts or ideas or things you'd like to hear on uh, future episodes of the podcast, you can send us a message on our Instagram uh, at Black Hats Run. And we'll catch you next time.